Good. Welcome to the Rational Egoists. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Over the last few years, perhaps no issue has affected more people and no issue has been more talked about than the coronavirus, COVID-19. Still, however, we don't know what were the origins of it. I mean, a lot of people claim they know, but in reality, we really don't know. So I figured I'd get someone on to talk about it. So that's what we're going to do today. Today's guest is a science, nature, and travel writer, and his articles have appeared in Rolling Stone, National Geographic, The New Yorker, and numerous other periodicals. And he's also the author of 15 books. Daniel Kwaman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's actually David Kwaman. David. Okay. Then why do I have Daniel? I don't know. I must've screwed up somewhere. Obviously I did. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's David. It's right in front of me too. Oh, Oh God. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, David, you were, you were very kind to ask me about the pronunciation of my last name, but yeah, I, got, I butchered my, the first name. The first name is pronounced David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So why is it important that we find out the origins of COVID. I mean, it, it, it's killed people. It's a, a bad virus. Why do we need to know where it came from? Some people challenge that idea that we need to know. Some people say, let's just deal with the pandemic that we have. Let's just keep people alive. Let's just protect people against this virus. Who cares where it came from? But it really does matter where it came from. It matters that we do our best to learn where it came from for a couple of reasons. One, to protect us, ourselves uh, against future pandemics. We need to know how this one got started as a way of helping us prevent future pandemics, avoid whatever led to this one in the future. Uh, to understand the virus better, we need to know its origins. And there is a great effect on public attitudes towards science public health funding, scientific research funding that depends on really on the answer to this question because it has become so politicized, so vitriolic, so angry, so confused um, and, and so binary. Did it come from a laboratory leak? If so, people are entitled to feel uh, very wary of laboratory research and a lot of them are arguing we should be doing less research on coronaviruses if it came from a wild animal a, a wild coronavirus spilling over for a while from a wild animal then among other things we need more research on coronaviruses it's a matter of um also of saying did this pandemic begin because those people over there made a mistake so we're going to blame them. Or did it begin because of what we 8 billion humans are doing on this planet every day, extracting resources from the natural world, coming in contact with wild animals that carry dangerous viruses, exposing ourselves to them? I, at this point, I'm not saying you have to believe one or the other, but that's why it matters. All right. So you mentioned the two theories, the, the lab leak theory. And mm -hmm. the w wild animal or the wet market theory, I, I'm not. I don't want it to even get into the whether it was deliberately manufactured. I don't think that from what I've seen, there's not much credibility for that view. Mm -hmm. But 
what is what is the evidence for each of the the sort of two main views the wet market view and the lab leak view well the people who promote the lab leak idea point immediately to the fact that this pandemic began in Wuhan, China, and in the city of Wuhan, there is an institute called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, in which a lab studies coronaviruses, the coronaviruses of bats, coronaviruses that could be dangerous in humans. So their biggest argument is that geographical proximity, that coincidence, if you believe it's a coincidence. And if you don't believe it's a coincidence, then it's that it's that juxtaposition, um, and then the lab leak proponents point to research, particular research that has been done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, research that's been done elsewhere, and they say this sort of research is dangerous. It could have led to this virus, and could have escaped from that laboratory in. An infected lab worker, for instance. Um, the people who uh, adhere to the natural origins view say, well, look, if geography matters, then think about the geography of the wild animal trade moving through the city of Wuhan. The trade in wild animals in China, wild animals for food, for traditional Chinese medicines, and for fur amounts to about $70 billion a year, billion. Wild animals being moved to markets, including markets in the big city of Wuhan, the city of 11 million people. That is well connected to the rest of China, including Southern China, um, which are the source of a lot of the wild animals that come to the market there. Um, I, I can't, in the time that we have, I can't even begin to scratch the surface of the different arguments on both sides. But the point that I make in my recent article in the New York Times Magazine on this subject, it came out July, Sunday, July um, 30th, um, the cover story in the New York Times Magazine on the question of the origins. What I go into there is both the balance of evidence for those two main theories, the balance of evidence or absence of evidence, direct evidence versus circumstantial evidence. Yes, circumstantial evidence is still a form of evidence. And the fact uh, that it seems to me that the preponderance of evidence lies on the side of natural origins, but the preponderance of public opinion lies on the side of lab leak. Public opinion not just in the United States, but in Great Britain, in France, in Italy, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in, a, in Brazil, um, inclines toward lab leak. And so what I address in the article in the Times Magazine is both the question of origins and what I call the meta question, the question about the question, why, if the preponderance of evidence points toward a natural origin, does public opinion favor lab leak? And I discussed that in the article, as you know. So you said that in your view, the preponderance of the evidence favors the, the sort of natural 
development of the virus. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't mean by that that it's absolutely certain, just that all things considered, it seems to you that the more likelihood is that it came from natural causes. Correct. Why, okay, so why do you think that? Well, let me first of all say um, that for us to know for sure where this came from, say say it came from a natural um, spillover from a wild animal. For us to know that for sure, this gold standard of, of evidence is for scientists to find a virus in a wild animal that is the progenitor of this virus. And by progenitor, I mean something that's 99.9% similar or 99.5% similar in its genome. The genome is 30,000 letters long, and that's how you compare one virus to another when you're saying how when you're asking how closely are they related is this the same virus is it is it is it a descendant of that virus you've got 30,000 letters and you compare two viruses and if they are 99.5% similar across those 30,000 letters then you can say this is essentially the same virus this is the same lineage of virus and if you find it in a wild animal and you know that wild animal has been, or members of the species of that wild animal have been in contact with humans in a market, um, then you can say we have solved, essentially we have solved the problem, solved the question. And that has occurred with other mysterious viruses that have emerged into humans with Marburg virus that emerged in 1967, a very, very killer virus related to Ebola virus with the original SARS virus that emerged in 2002, swept around the world in 2003. Eventually, that level of confidence was was attained for the animal origin. In both cases, uh, it was found in certain species of bats, the same virus, 99.5% similar. So that's, that's the gold standard of evidence. We don't have that for this virus. We need to continue doing research that might give us that virus. But um, what we have is a long history of seeing coronaviruses similar to this virus in horseshoe bats in southern China, horseshoe bats being part of the trade in wild animals. They were not in the market in the city of Wuhan, but they are part of the trade where these animals are all mixed together and they shed viruses from one to another. It's very common, it's known. Um, There are other points of evidence um, that strongly suggest this comes from the market in Wuhan. There is the pattern of 155 early cases that are um, in a non-random way centered around the Wanan seafood wholesale market. Um, And there are, there is the fact that there are two separate lineages of this virus that have been found, now known as lineage A and lineage B, distinct lineages. They've been found in early sampling in the market and in early cases. And these lineages, lineage A and B, are so different that the scientists who study um, the family trees of viruses say these look like separate spillovers from a wild animal. These are not just different evolutionary variations in humans. These look like two beginnings 
of the pandemic, two beginnings, two beginnings that both are associated with that market. Now, if you had two beginnings and they were closely associated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is seven or eight miles away across the Yangtze River, you would be entitled to say that is strong evidence that this came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Not just that there were cases around that institute, but there are two beginnings suggesting maybe two lab workers got infected from experimentation and they left the Wuhan Institute and they infected other people and it's centered around that, uh, that facility, that institute. That's not what you have. What you have is many or most of the cases centered around the one on market and two distinct lineages suggesting two beginnings. So that's that's part of the evidence that that I've looked at. Again, it's not absolute, mm -hmm. but but it's to me it's persuasive. What I find very interesting about this whole dynamic is when you said how public opinion thinks that it came from a lab, more you know, the majority anyway. Yeah. So when you answer the question, you who know a lot about the subject say you're not certain. So when I think about it, I, I'm definitely not certain. I really have no clue. I mean, if I had to bet, you know, gun to my head, I would say, I think, say it probably came from the wet market only because the arguments that I've heard so far, it seems like that's the more logical conclusion, but I really don't know. But there's so many people who are absolutely certain, like they know it came from the, the lab. That's it. It's a case closed. And a lot of people even seem to think that that's, the accepted view now that it came from the lab when really it was just some, you know, an agency within the U S I can't remember which one it is now said, you know, the likelihood is it came from the lab and that to some people is taken as absolute evidence. Is that, have you come across that dynamic or is that just because I'm not in the no. most enlightened circles? I don't know. Maybe. No, no, you're, um, you're correct. And, uh, in your sense of that, um, there is there is a great um, deal of, I think, false confidence in a lot of people. They do a little bit of Googling. They read a couple of magazine articles. They see something on the news. They, they absorb a couple of bullet points and they say, it obviously came from the lab. You know, the comedian John Stewart goes on the Colbert show I talk about this in my Times article. And he says, well, just look at the name, you know, and, and he got the name wrong. He was trying to say the <laughs> Wuhan Institute of Virology, but he called it the Wuhan uh, Respiratory Coronavirus Lab or something like that. Look at the name. So for John Stewart, who is not a dumb guy, it seemed very obvious. Case open and shut, case closed. This is false confidence. These people are just not aware of how complicated the science is, how knowledgeable the scientists are who study the molecular evolutionary virology of coronaviruses. Um, there's a lot of amateur virology that's being practiced on the internet by people who, you know, read a few things and think they think I've done my research because I spent an hour on Google and they think that um, that this is settled. And and there is, I think, false confidence on both sides, but there is more of it, I believe, more angry, accusative false confidence 
on the side of those people who are saying, this is a lab leak, those scientists over there did it, they should be in prison, they're lying. It's very vitriolic, it's very unhealthy for civic discourse, and it's not contributing to the effort to actually solve this question. That kind of brings me to my next question for you is I don't recall ever seeing this or hearing this type of thing before. Like, I don't understand why two camps have developed like this that are just so each side is adamant. It, it, it like I've never seen this before. Maybe I guess maybe with AIDS, there was a lot of people who said it's a man-made virus, but not to this degree. Maybe it's the Internet. I don't know. But why is that that with this particular virus? It seems to be separated by teams or tribes of people who think they know. Why did that happen here? Teams or tribes is a good way of putting it. Yes, uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, and it's mysterious to me, too. Um, social media has a lot to do with it. The pace at which information and misinformation are spread is unprecedented now. It's not like anything in the past. Um, and in particular, um, by way of the internet, you can you can find somebody um, who is vehemently, um, confidently telling you almost anything, you know, that Bill Gates is, is putting chips into your children if you get them vaccinated. You can find somebody telling you that with great confidence. Uh, you can find somebody telling you that, you know, vaccines cause autism. You can find, you can even find somebody named Robert Kennedy Jr. saying things like that. Um, but you can find a lot, a lot of people who don't have famous names, who, but who are acquiring famous names telling you these things with great confidence. And so people, I think, they're sitting in front of their TVs, they're sitting in front of their con computers, and they're absorbing information and misinformation at a rate unlike anything that we've seen in the past. We have had controversies like this before um, over big events, the explanations of big events, where there are two camps. Uh, I'll mention one, and it's controversial. Some some of the lab leak people, uh, they, their hair stands on end when I compare this to the John Kennedy assassination. Oh, you're calling us conspiracy theorists. Well, I'm making an analogy. And if you believe that that there was a conspiracy to do dangerous research on coronaviruses, and there was a leak, and then there was a conspiracy to conceal that leak, Tony Fauci conspiring with Christian Anderson and Robert Gary, some of the scientists who worked on this, whatever. If you believe that there's been conspiring to cover up a lab leak, well, then you are a conspiracy theorist by definition, and you should own that. Go ahead and own it. Um, so I make the analogy with the Kennedy assassination. I'm old enough to remember vividly getting the news that President Kennedy has just been shot in Dallas. I was a sophomore in high school and I was in a history class and it, that news came over the PA. So that's part of my cultural foundations. Um, very quickly, there arose conspiracy theories. 
you know, there was this guy, this loser, this this loner, this ex-Marine, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was captured. And there was a lot of evidence, you know, he, that that he had shot Kennedy from the the sixth floor of this or the fifth floor of this building in Dallas. A ton of evidence. But then two days later, he was killed. He was shot in the stomach in the basement of the Dallas police station by some other dingling, Jack Ruby. So Oswald was gone. And that was so bizarre, so dramatic, so important that immediately conspiracy theories grew up. Oswald was a patsy. Oswald was framed. There was a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. The CIA was involved. Castro was involved. The mafia was involved. Yada, yada, yada. Lots of conspiracy theories. And it's gone on. And and still to this day, and I make this point in the Times article, something like 61% of the American public mm-hmm. prefers to believe that John Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy and not by Lee Harvey Oswald making two lucky shots with a $13 rifle. People who are not very well informed and uh, who are suspicious of authority and distrustful are inclined to embrace theories like that. And they have always been inclined to embrace theories like that. But it's much worse now, yes, because of social media, because of the internet. So earlier you said, you talked about how the scientists, they're very knowledgeable, uh, you know, about molecular biology. And well, some of them are. Viruses. Yeah. yeah, you were talking about specifically those scientists. Now there's a large lack of trust right now in yes. scientists. Yeah. And from my perspective, some of that is understandable. And that's kind of my question for you is how uh, how much of it do you think is understandable that people are no longer that trusting of scientific authority as perhaps they once were? Like, is it reasonable to you that people are doubting what scientists say now? I think it's it's understandable in this way, Michael. Most people are confused about what science is and how it works. So when a scientist says, well, we think the answer to this question is 24. A scientist is saying, to the best of our knowledge at this point, um, based on the research that has been done, research we've done ourselves, the research that's been published with in peer-reviewed scientific journals, the answer to question X is 24. But science is always provisional. Science is self-correcting. Science is continually challenging its own results. And when it makes mistakes, science is designed in a way to correct those mistakes. Sometimes it does correct itself. So after that answer has been given, the answer is 24. Um, A year later, another group of scientists will come along and say, well, no, we found that the answer is 23 or the answer is 24 and a half it's different and people will jump on that and they'll say well see the scientists don't even know what they're talking about last year they said the answer was 24 now they say the answer is 23 what's going on well what's going on is the process of science continuing refinement of understanding based on new work 
new research, new data. Um, you know, there was a time when the best scientists on the planet, um, people like uh, the ancient Greek um, Ptolemy said, well, the earth is obviously the center of the universe and the sun and the stars and the planets rotate around the earth. And then in the Middle Ages, we had Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler with new telescopes that would allow them um, to see things that Ptolemy in ancient Greece couldn't see. And they said, well, no, scratch that. Um, the sun doesn't rotate around the earth. The earth rotates around the sun. Does that mean science is illegitimate and always has been? No, it's the way science works. Uh, that happened when Albert Einstein made corrections um, on Isaac Newton's theories of dynamics, gravity, the movement of the planets, the movement of forces on the earth. Einstein corrected what Newton had said about gravity. Well, it's a good approximation, but the actual truth is more complicated. Did that invalidate science? No, that's that's what science is supposed to do. But most people uh, are never taught in school or anywhere else about the fact that science is not a body of final answers. Science is a process of incremental movement toward a more and more accurate understanding of the physical reality of the universe. See, I agree with you to an extent. And what I mean is I agree with you 100% about what you're saying about science is 100% accurate. The problem is, is a lot of tentative conclusions during uh, the COVID pandemic were presented to the public as absolute fact. And then the public was told you have to behave this way or you, you know, you, you're going to be locked down. I mean, just two examples are Dr. Fauci going on 60 minutes saying, no, we masks. No, that, you know, that you don't need masks. And then later saying, yes, you do. And saying basically that he lied initially because he didn't want to start a panic. And the other was at the beginning, and it's not uh, not scientists, but politicians were out there saying, if you get the vaccine, that's what we're going to do. We're going to develop herd immunity. We're going to stop the spread. But then they went on to say, no, 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 no. The, the What the vaccine does is it will stop you from getting very sick, but it, but it won't stop you from getting it. It's at the point now, I don't even know what the vaccines do because the, the, there's been so many different statements about it. But what I do know is that the people, either the scientists or more likely, and it's hard for me to even remember the, the politicians speaking for them, or in some cases, it's scientists who are now speaking as politicians and they give disparate answers and to, to fall back on the science is a process thing. I, I agree with you, by the way, everything yeah. you just said, I agree yeah. that happened. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough thing for people to get their minds around especially when, you know, it's one thing if guys are just speculating from the ivory tower, but when they come in and tell you, you have to shut your business down, you, uh, you know, the government's telling government employees, you have to get vaccinated. And then it turns out, well, wait a second, you were wrong th these three times. How do I trust you now? I just, it seems to me they should have just been honest from the beginning and said, look, this is a novel virus. We really don't know. And we're trying to do our best to figure it out, but that's not how they spoke. Right. And and I don't like, how can we get back from that? I guess is my, cause yeah. you agree with me, but how do we get back from that to a point where people don't distrust scientists? I don't care if they distrust the government. I think it's smart to distrust the government, 
But it would be nice to be able to trust the people that you, you said earlier have an, a, an abundance of knowledge about these topics. So yeah, how, yeah. how do we get back there? Well, I think we get back from that partly by having conversations like the one you and I are having right now, highlighting this problem, highlighting and, and, and admitting the things that have been done. There were statements made, and I think Tony Fauci made some of them, that he had to walk back. Um, whether it was exactly, you know, he was um, he was lying because he didn't want people to panic or he was oversimplifying things, saying, no, you, the public, don't need masks right now because we, you know, for whatever reason, and we have a shortage of masks and we need those to be in the hands of healthcare work, whatever. I'm not going to try and defend everything Tony Fauci said, and I'm certainly not going to try and um, justify everything that was said either by a scientist or a politician or an administrator speaking, just, you know, supposedly presenting science to the general public. I agree with you. There was a lot of confusion in the first, particularly the first six months of this pandemic, because it was uh, very dangerous, very befuddling, uh, unprecedented in the modern world. We hadn't had a pandemic like this moving this fast since 1918, 1919, the, the influenza pandemic that, you know, we have all heard killed 50 million or so people around the world. Um, we we had a horrible pandemic, have had a horrible pandemic um, called AIDS. Um, but it, one thing about it, and, and that's killed 35 million people, I think 37 million people right now, horrible pandemic, but it's a slow moving pandemic. And a lot of people haven't felt that it's their problem because it's a, basically a sexually transmitted virus or transmitted in blood also. And anyway, most people said, well, I, that's not my problem because I'm not engaged in the kind of behaviors that put me at risk for that. So it wasn't as democratic. It was, it was, a, it was a, a, a pandemic, has been a pandemic, um, that a lot of people felt insulated from, rightfully or not. And the people who were most at risk were stigmatized. Oh, it's their problem, not our problem. This one immediately showed its capacity to infect everyone through a sneeze, a cough. Much scarier than anything we had gone through in your lifetime or even in my lifetime. So there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of mistakes made. How do we get back from that? We help people. We patiently, um, non-condescendingly help people learn a little bit more about, among other things, what science is and how it works. And that's what you and I are doing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. So I would have a chance to put my oar in the water on that a little bit it's not it's not the whole answer but it's part of it don't you think oh i i definitely do i i i think it goes back to the first you know the first question i asked you why is it important to find out yeah. and i think it's important to find out incredibly so you know i mean not just the, the speculation here and there but a credible answer of where this thing came from i think would go some of the way towards yeah. restoring some trust yeah. Not all the way. I mean, you know, some people just want to believe in conspiracies and you're, you're right. those guys are never going to get reached. 
But I just know that, like, I mean, I was in prison at, at the time with this pandemic and we were just getting so much different, you know, uh, recommendations. Do this. Don't do this. You you, you got to be locked up completely. You can't go. And near you were, so you were in a, a special at risk group. That was very dangerous. Then. Yes, it was horrendous. I mean, it was and they clearly didn't know what they were doing. And then, you you know, you've got to throw in some incompetence and indifference into the mix. And it was it was awful. And the thing was with when you in prison, if you test positive, it's not just like, you know, you test positive, stay home for a couple of weeks. They uproot you. You were getting moved out of the facility. They're packing your stuff. You're going to a special facility and, you know, maybe you lose your property. And so it was a, a rough, rough scene for a while in there, the, the way it was going down. But I mean, for me, it was far more, I think I, the word I would maybe use is condensed. Like it was just every day, constant, constant, constant. But it, it was the same dynamic that was ultimately taking place in, in the free world where you're getting mixed signals. You don't know what to do. Your life's turned upside down. And I think that made reasonable people start to question and say, wait yeah. a second, these guys don't know what they're talking about. So I do yeah. think and, that we need- and, and there are a lot of people, as we know, um, you know, people in prison, special risk situation for them um healthcare workers special risk situation for them a lot of healthcare workers are people that don't make a lot of money um and um have to work every day can't say oh i'm you know i'm going to hunker down for 2 weeks i'm going to hunker down for 2 months i'm going to i'm going to opt out of work they can't do that they have to pay rent they have to buy groceries for themselves yeah. and kids horrible situation horrible responsibility um i you know i've spent a lot of time and a lot of years uh as a, as a not i'm not a scientist but i'm a writer uh journalist and an author who has covered this subject for about 24 years now and i was writing about coronaviruses long before this pandemic and among other things i was saying that the experts are telling me i said this 12 or 13 years ago in a book, the experts are telling me that there is a pandemic coming. It's going to be caused by a new virus, probably coming out of a wild animal, probably either an influenza virus or a coronavirus or one of the other viruses that evolve very quickly. But I was, you know, I said that in 2012. This is what the experts are saying, and I'm listening, and we probably all should listen to them. So when this began, I my reaction was, well, here we go. Here we go. What is it going to look like? If they've said that it's coming, now it's here. It is a coronavirus, just the way that guy told me 10 years ago that it might be a coronavirus. Um, it seems to have come. Uh-oh, you froze on in me. In this market, that, that was something that we're predicting. Oh, um, you're still? back now. You're back. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. I don't know. I've got pretty good Wi-Fi in this office. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know if I should repeat myself. I was going on about sure. that. I mean, because um, I, I, I want to get it. I, I want to get it out. So you were saying about when this virus hit, you wanted to see where it was going. That's that's where you you froze up. Yes, on. yes. And one of the things that occurred to me very early on, like January or February of 2020, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. Um, in January of 2020, saying, folks, this could be it. Tie on your hat. This could be bad. This could be the next pandemic. January 28th of 2020. Um, 
And, uh, and I wasn't the only one saying that. The scientists who study this could all see that that was likely to be the case, but it, we could see it's going to be serious. And one of the things I knew was going to be serious was the tension, the natural unavoidable tension between the mandates of public health and civil liberties, individual freedoms versus community health. I knew that that was going to be a, a, a tension at best and a collision at worst. And, and we certainly saw that. So when there, when there are closures, when people, when, when politicians said, okay, we're closing all the restaurants, we're closing the schools, um, we're closing the hospitals for elective surgery, those decisions were decisions based on the best thinking and, and advice that, that they were getting from public health uh, experts and scientists, um, but those those decisions had repercussions. Uh, they had they had effect in that they helped to limit the spread of the virus, but they also um, had the effect of spreading difficulty, spreading hardship to people. That was no surprise. You could see that coming. I could I could see that was going to happen. Um, I couldn't have predicted how severe it was going to be, or exactly how it would play out, or which groups would be most affected. Um, I thought this virus was going to hit really hard in the big cities of Africa, like Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was one of the first thoughts I've had, because I've spent time there, millions and millions of people crowded together in a city, um, a, a lot of poverty, a lot of political upheaval, um, uh, some brilliant scientists and medical people, but a public health system that is not sufficient to serve the people. I I was saying in, in February of 2020, oh my God, what's gonna happen when this hits Kinshasa? Well, it never hit Kinshasa very badly. Um, it never hit, uh, it hit South Africa pretty badly, but it didn't hit big African cities nearly as hard as I thought it was going to. I was wrong about that. Um, but the scientists I listened to and some of the things I was saying, we, we were right about other things. It was all new. It was all new. And people were doing their best and making mistakes. Some people. I, I don't think everybody was so innocent. We, we, Some, we, yeah. yeah. I think, okay. you know, politicians have a tendency for power grabs and for grandstanding. And I think that there's some of them that took advantage of the opportunity to you know, bring themselves to the public attention and to maybe increase their power, whatever. I just don't assume their motives are are, are so pure. I think there were people that try to do their That's best, reasonable. but I just wouldn't, I I wouldn't say that about everybody. You know what I mean? I hear you on that. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think the chances that we're ever actually going to get an answer about where this came from? Are you optimistic or pessimistic on this? I've got to be optimistic because it's important. It's not going to be easy. It's not a sure thing. We've got to keep investing effort and money to do the research to find the answer, whether it was whether it was a natural spillover from a wild animal in that market or, you know, or a lab leak. We've got to have more information from Chinese officialdom. Yes, we need that. We haven't had that. I don't know how we get that, but we got to keep trying. And we need to have more research on the viruses that wild animals carry uh, 
not just in China, but around the world and how those viruses get into humans. Let me say something about how hard it is to solve those questions of origin with, um, with the gold standard of proof. I mentioned Marburg virus, which is a cousin of Ebola virus. And I mentioned that it's been traced eventually to bats. It's carried by a particular kind of bat called the Egyptian fruit bat in Uganda and, and other parts of uh, Central and, and East Africa. How long did it take to come up with that answer? First outbreak was 1967. Um, the answer was published in 2009. So it took 42 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So we may be in this for the long haul. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yep. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, I think we've had a great discussion. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people find you? I know you, you're published in all kinds of magazines and newspapers. Do you well, a website um, or something? I have a website. It's easy. Um, davidquaman.com davidquaman.com that's my website um, my the article that I just mentioned is out it's online New York Times Magazine it's just up um, about the origin question um, the ongoing mystery of the origins of COVID uh, and the book that I published on this is titled Breathless that was published um, last October Breathless, the scientific race to defeat a deadly virus. And that'll be out in paperback next year. All right. Great. Well, David Kwame, not Daniel, David, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. For now, this is the Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz, thank Michael you. Leibowitz. I enjoyed talking with you. It's Mark, Mark Leibowitz. <laughs> For now, this is the Rational Egoist, Michael Leibowitz signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.